Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Now, I was, um, this week I was in the car with my oldest son, Cannon, and I got permission to share this story, but uh, we were driving, and I was thinking about, you know, what are your goals in your life? You know, what, are your go- what do you, what do you want to do? What do you think that, you know, your future might entail? And so it brought to mind a, a psalm that has actually been really meaningful for me all throughout my life. It's been, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Out of Psalm 27, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And so as a young man, I heard that verse and I would think, that's amazing. Like, I can, if I just delight myself in God, you know, if I like seek to serve him or honor him or whatever that really looks like or means, you know, like try to do that in my life, make him happy with me or like study his word or just kind of feast on him, delight myself in him, then he'll give me the desires of my heart. Like, that's awesome. I just think to myself, this is amazing. And so I asked my son, I said, Cannon, I said, what, what would delight your heart? What do you want to, well, if you could ask God for something, what would it be? We're in the car, and he stops, and he thinks for a moment, and he says, a seven-string guitar with fan frets. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's really cool. That's really cool. Was that it? Like, that's all you want in life is a seven-string guitar? And he, he thinks about that a lot. I said, but at least, like, as an 18-year-old boy, how about, like, a, if you could ask the king of the universe who owns everything and can speak it into being, maybe you would at least ask for a Mitsubishi Lancer Evo double turbo with coilovers and catback exhaust, racing slicks, and a real spoiler. Like, let, you're dreaming way too far down and then it kind of set me and he was with me and poor guy he kind of got like dad the preacher mode at that moment in time I'm like and why would you stop there if God says he'll give you the desires of your heart why stop there why think that that's all that your life might mean it's a seven string guitar why not ask God give me a, a godly wife that loves me and adores me Why not say, God, would you someday give me children that will bless me or a job that satisfies me or good friends that will stay with me through thick and thin? I said, Cannon, you're dreaming way too little. You're dreaming too small. When we have the God of the universe on our side, what could our life be capable of and possible? What would be possible for us You know, it's so easy to look at the world around us and to think, I'm too poor, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too feeble, I'm too uneducated, that's too expensive, they're too strong, they're too powerful, I'm not not powerful or popular enough, but if God is with me and God is for me and he says that he He's gonna be present, and even maybe that he would grant me the desires of my heart. What would you possibly dream, what could you believe in him and trust him for if that was really true? It presents in us this tension because, you know, I look in the mirror and I see one version of myself, and yet God says something that's true about me, and if he's present with me, And yet here I am, I feel this way, and yet here's what God says is true about me and what is possible for me, and it feels like there's this tension that exists in the middle of that. 
Have you ever experienced that when you read some of these passages of scripture where God says things like that and you feel like, but I'm just, I'm just me. What am I gonna accomplish? I think that's a tension that exists for us as well in the book that we've been studying, the book of Judges. It's this Old Testament book that records the history of Israel, this period of time when they got into the promised land before they had a king, and so there's Moses in Egypt, and let my people go, and he gets into the, like, close to the promised land, he's just on the edge of it, and Moses dies, and he hands over the mantle of authority over to Joshua, this great leader. Joshua helps the people go into the promised land, and Joshua gets them situated, and then Joshua gets ready to die, and he says to them, hey, don't look at the way the world does things. You don't need to look out. You need to look up to God. Joshua passes away, and the people enter into this 300-year period where there's no king, and Israel's supposed to be a theocracy. They're supposed to be ruled by the law of God. There was no king. There would be no king for 300 years. Instead, the law would be dispensed through these series of judges or tribal chiefs. And the problem is that Israel was created from scratch to reflect the glory of God. God said from Abraham, I'm gonna create a nation out of you and the whole world is gonna be blessed for you, through you. And when people look at you and they see, hey, your crops are growing and our crops aren't growing and you're victorious and we're not and you're kinda like doing really well and we're not doing so well, you're supposed to be a reflection of the character and the heart and the capability and the mind of the one true living God in a world that's constantly looking at false idols and false way of doing things, you're supposed to represent the heart and the mind of God. And people would say, dude, who's your God, man? Because you've got it going on and I want that in my heart and I want that in my life. And that's what was supposed to be true about the nation of Israel. But when they got into the promised land, they did exactly what you and I often do and that is that they often look out rather than looking up and they started saying you know I want some of the ways that they live I want that in my life and God's going no 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 you don't want to do that because if you do that you're going to dilute your influence and you're going to become just like all the other nations and then the whole lot of you will just be messed up and you'll be just like everyone else and you've been created you've been set apart to be something else. You've been set apart to be more significant than that, to be extraordinary and not just ordinary. But the nation of Israel, they said, well, we see them, and we see their king, and we see their gods, and we want to be like them. And so they, they did that, and they started following these Canaanite gods, and then what would happen is they went into this cycle, and it happened over and over and over again. They would see the, the nations, they would act like the nations, and so they would be disobeying what God asked them to do, this law that God had given them, and when that would happen, there would be this like disaster that would fall upon them, and then they would call out to God, and God would deliver them, and that cycle would happen all over and over again. They would dis disobey, there'd be a disaster, God would deliver. They'd disobey, there'd, there'd be this disaster that happened, God would deliver them, and they'd find themselves going through this cycle, and they would say, oh God, oh God, oh God, I, I want independence from you, I don't want to follow your ways, that's, that's Abraham, that's old fashioned, I don't even know that part of our history anymore, we just wanna do what we wanna do when we wanna do it, and God would say, okay, you can do that, but there's gonna be 
some fallout in your life when that happens. There's gonna be some natural consequences. And they would say when those disasters would hit them, they would say, God, forgive us. God would say, okay, I will. But have you learned your lesson? Do you, do you really, are you really repentant of that? And they would say, yes, we are. We're never gonna do that again. And then God would bless them. And guess what they would do? They'd go right back into that cycle all over and over and over again. And so for out these 300 years, God would raise up these judges, and these judges would step in to deliver God's people. And one of those judges' names was Gideon. Now, unlike Samson, we looked at him last week. Samson was a hot mess. That guy was a dumpster fire. If you missed it, go back and watch on the app. It's such a fascinating story. You want to see what life can look like when it gets bad. You look at Samson. Gideon was, was not quite like him. He was a good judge. Mostly good. We'll take a look at his life today. And if you want to read the whole story, we're just going to be looking at a, a, a part of it. If you want to read that whole story, I would highly recommend that. And if you're like, I don't even have a Bible, I don't, I'm not a Bible reading kind of person, those orange Bibles, we love giving those away, so just take one and we'll buy more. It's not a problem. Take one and it's our gift to you. And if you're like, I'm still not a reader kind of person, did you know there are apps that will read the Bible to you when you drive on your way to work? It's unbelievable. It's called the Version Bible app. I highly recommend that. But step in and read this powerful, powerful story. It's an important story because Gideon is so much like you and I. Gideon believes in God, and yet there's just a lot of competing ideas from the culture around him. A lot of pressure from his family, a lot of pressure from his community, and so he's like, I believe in God, but there's these competing ideas, and, and so Gideon just kind of went along with the culture's ideas about how he saw himself, what he thought was possible in his life, and he would view himself just as everyone else viewed him, and he would say this, he would say, I'm just an ordinary person, and I'm going to be just like everybody else, and this story is so fascinating. Because God comes to Gideon and he just kind of shakes him and he, he says, listen, you've given in to the narrative of the culture around you. What are you doing? You've forgotten that the spirit of God actually rests on you, the nation of Israel, my people. Wake up. I want you to start acting like a Gideon that's going to do extraordinary things. And listen, this is not because of positive mental thinking. This isn't about reaching out and changing your stars through the fortitude of your own heart and will. This is about the reality that God was present with them. And that's what it speaks to as well. It's not just what you can do inside of you. It's what you can do when you submit and when you surrender to a God that says, I will be present with you. And so here's how this story goes. Just a little bit of the context, and there's so much more beyond this, so step in there, read it, you're on your own. It's so fascinating. In Judges chapter six, and this is page 167 in the Orange Bibles, if you wanna follow along, there's so much here, it's so fascinating. Judges chapter six, we're gonna start in verse one. It says this, it says that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of of the Midianites. 
Now the Midianites were these distant, distant cousins of Israel, and so there was kind of this feud that happened between them, and at this part in time, the Midianites have the upper hand, and they're oppressing the Israelites. It says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts in caves and in strongholds. They couldn't even live in their own homes. They couldn't even live in their cities. They had to run and flee to the hills because, verse three, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and they didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. Verse six, and Midian was so impoverished, they so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So here's what what happens. Once again, the Israelites, they wanted to do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, whenever they wanted to do it, with whom they wanted to do it, they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes and they disobeyed God and they started worshiping these Midianite gods and following the Midianite kings and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You copy something and then all of a sudden you're captured by it. That's what happened to them. And so there's these natural consequences and so for seven years, God allows the Midianites to kind of trample all over them. And then finally, there's this famine. They're impoverished. Everything is taken away from them. And then they finally do what you and I often do when life starts going sideways and we get caught in the middle of it and we don't like it. All that there is left to do is pray, sometimes we'll say. And so they call on the name of the God whose rules they actually disobeyed in the first place. Now, how did God respond? In just a moment, we're going to see this Gideon character show up. But I think it's really fascinating what God does first. First, God shows up with a prophet. We don't know who this person is. It's a, a prophet, by the way. It just means a messenger of God, like a human messenger of God. Do you know that angel, what an angel is, it just a divine messenger of God. They're both messengers. They speak for God. And so this prophet shows up, and this is what he does. He says, I want you to remember Israel. You're seven years in. You're hiding in the caves. You're, you're being oppressed by the Midianites, but I want you to remember how you got in this mess in the first place. I want you to remember that God brought you out of Egypt from this king that you wanted to be independent from, and I don't want that king, this Pharaoh, to rule over me anymore. God brought you out of that, and what did you do? You went right from one king to another, because one king always leads to another, and you put yourself in this position now where you're following them, and now you're caught by them, and now you're enslaved to them, and you've been in disobedience, and that's what the prophet says. And end message, you've been disobedient. And I look at this, and I say, God, why did you send the prophet? No words of good tiding of hope and joy. Is God just being snarky with them, like rubbing their face in it? See the mess that you've made? I don't think so. I think he's trying to show them where their idolatry had taken them. And in mercy and in love, he's saying, hey, this is what your rebellion has cost you. I don't want you to do this again. Now the thing is, they're crying out to God. It wasn't real repentance. 
It wasn't real repentance. They they were just over and over again kind of caught in their own sin, and they would cry out, but over and over again, their brokenness was only skin deep. And so when they got caught in the middle of it, they would turn back to God that loved them. And listen, they weren't broken. They weren't broken on the inside to break the heart and the mind and the character and the love of God that loved them and pursued them. That wasn't what they had going on. In fact, the New Testament draws this sharp distinction, and I think this is so helpful and so powerful for us as parents. And it's this distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Parents, do you know what worldly sorrow is? It's, Dad, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I didn't cover over it better. I wish I could have managed the consequences because then I wouldn't have had to ask for your help. But I got caught, and I regret that I got caught. The New Testament compares these two. He says, uh, Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Parents, you know that difference. You know what it looks like in your children's eyes when it's not just... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you were hurt, like with their sibling or something, versus I, I can't believe I, I messed up again. I've been trying to work on this, and I just feel like I keep coming up at the ends of myself. You can see it in your kids' eyes when they go from that kind of worldly sorrow to a godly sorrow that takes place. See, worldly sorrow brings regret, but godly sorrow brings real repentance. Regret is all about us, and you know how, you know how when someone is in worldly sorrow, this is what they'll say. Yeah, but she pulled my hair first. Yeah, but they stole my parking spot. Yeah, but I can't believe they wronged me that way, and it will always be about themselves. Me, 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 me. Godly sorrow is different than that. Godly sorrow is a real brokenness of the soul. Godly sorrow says, I know I should have been different from this, and it breaks my heart that that it conquered me again. God, I know I should have believed that you would deliver me. I know I should have believed that you would provide for me and my family, and yet I couldn't really trust you, and so I took things into my own hands. God, why do I keep doing that? Why don't I believe in your heart? You see the difference between those two? See, Israel, time and time again, they just got caught with their hand, their can, their hand in the cookie jar. Like over and over again, they were worldly sorrow. Now, here's the cool thing. Listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, if you're falling asleep and you're checking out the sports scores or whatever's going on out in the world, if you don't hear anything else, you need to hear this one thing. This is so very important. This is so cool. Because it's even in their worldly sorrow It's even in the regret and not the repentance that God turns his face towards them. This is what what happens. This is where we meet Gideon. This is where God steps in in a unique way to deliver his people. Verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Beazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the nation rebelled against God, when they turned to him, Even when they didn't have godly sorrow, even when they were still in their rebellion, guess what God did? He turned to them. He took a step in their direction. In fact, that's what God does with all of us because he is a God of mercy. 
and his mercies are new every single morning. And he's so merciful, though, that sometimes you know, he's not going to shield us from the consequences of our dumb decisions. Because by not shielding us from the consequence of our dumb decisions, we're going to face the full consequences of that so that we'll never, ever wa- walk in rebellion from him again. Listen, God is so much more, more merciful and he is holy. He brings both of these things together because his holiness says there is truth about your behavior and so he sends the prophet and the prophet says this is what you need to know that's actually happening inside your heart. You think you're, re- you're repentant but you're not. But then he's also merciful because he sends his recruiter and his rescuer even though there's no real evidence of repentance. Guys, when I look at this, this is so much more of a gracious response than you or I would have had with someone who continually comes back and hurts me over and over and over and over again without any sign of stopping. God is full of mercy and he's full of holiness. His mercy steps in where he commissions this judge to a people that haven't repented. Here's what's so shocking about this that God doesn't wait for us to repent before he starts walking our way, before he starts saving us. The book of Romans says that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. God doesn't begin to save us because we repent. We repent because he's begun to love us and care about us and step into our world. And then God's gonna invade our lives and he's gonna forgive and he's gonna restore us to him. That's what God does. And we ask the question, how many times? How many times is God gonna do that? How many rounds do I get? As many rounds as you need. Because God's mercy never, ever, ever runs out. But he loves you too much to not let you face the full consequences because he doesn't want you to stay in rebellion to him. This is what this story in part tells us. And that's where we get introduced to Gideon. Now where is Gideon when we meet him? This is what it says. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Threshing wheat. Isn't that something that you're supposed to do? You know, like you throw the wheat up in the air and the wind comes and takes the the stupid stuff away and leaves the good stuff behind. And so isn't that supposed to be done out in the open, you know, where the wind can do that? And yet this is where Gideon is. He's hiding. They're so afraid that he's such a coward along with all the rest of the Israelites. They're just trying to preserve what little they had left. It says that he was in the threshing, he he was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I'm, I'm in hiding right now. I'm in a wine press right now. I don't have anything. I'm a nobody. Everybody knows you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You gotta be up where you could be seen, where you can be in the wind, and I'm hiding He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, before we continue any further, I think this is important because for some of you, this is where you're at right now. You've lost sight of who you are. You've lost sight of what God wants to do in your life. You've forgotten this God of your childhood. You've forgotten all of those last nights at youth camp where that you've rededicated yourself. You've forgotten all those answered prayers. You've forgotten how good God has been and you've moved to the big city and now you're in this place where you define yourself by the culture around you rather than what God has said about you. 
And so there's this battle going on in our hearts and God shows up and he says, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And you're like, God, do you know where I was at last night? Have you been paying attention to my life? Do you know how long it's been since I've prayed? Do you know how long it's been since I've attended church? Do you know how long it's been since I've opened a Bible? Do you know, God, how far I've drifted? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And so Gideon, I love him, he says exactly what you and I think. This is what he says. He says, pardon me. He's so polite. I love that he's polite. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies. But if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Now, this is great because this is a question that so many of us have asked in one form or another. I know you have. If, if God is good, then why all of the bad, Lord? God, if you're for me, then why does it feel like the world is against me? God, why don't I still have a job? Why haven't we been able to get pregnant? Why, 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 why? God, why if all, if you're supposed to be so good, why am I experiencing so much bad? Here's some great news, listen. If you've ever found yourself asking some version of that question, Gideon voiced it a long, 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 long time ago. And God is not offended by us asking that question. In fact, that may just be the catalyst to restore a relationship back with your heavenly Father. Gideon says, where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? I mean, come on, God, I've heard about that all my life. You know, Abraham, and, and there's gonna be this nation, and there was Egypt, and then God delivers us, but why doesn't God deliver us now? Why doesn't God deliver us from the Midianites? Why doesn't God do for me what he said he did for them? He says, but now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hands of the Midians. I'm not a mighty warrior. God, you're not a good, mighty God. This ain't working out, and it's not like it used to believe be, and I'm not sure that I even believe all of those fables anyway. And this is how God responds to him in verse 14. The Lord turns to him and says, go in the strength you have. Go in the strength you have. Say that back with me. Go in the strength you have, he says, and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Didn't you just hear what I said, God? I mean, I'm not a warrior. God, you've not done anything with us lately, and now you want me to go save us from the hands of the Midians? How's that gonna work out exactly? Precisely, Lord, how is that going to happen? Why are you bothering me here in the wine press? And this is how God responds. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? And this is the moment, come on, this is the moment where the theme music should have struck, where Gideon should have clenched his fists, pushed out his chest, and walked boldly out of that wine press and faced all that was in front of him. But this is history, this isn't a fairy tale. He says, verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, 
Again, he's so polite. Gideon replied, how can I save Israel? I love this. This is so great. He says, my clan is in the weakest in Manasseh. And if you remember Israel's this nation, it's comprised of 12 tribes. He's from Manasseh. He says, I'm not even from a famous or significant tribe. I'm from the weakest clan, the weakest tribe. And he says, I am the least in my family. Translation. I went to community college. I didn't even get that good of grades in community college. I don't have money. I'm barely middle class. I'm a nobody. No one's handed me a microphone. I've never been on a stage. I don't even have a girlfriend. I have four friends on Instagram, and those are the people that are willing to friend me so I can figure out the whole platform in the first place. I'm a nobody, and I'm hiding in the wine press from the enemy. And you came down here and now you're telling me, you're bothering me, you're saying I'm a mighty warrior and I'm supposed to go save an entire nation? I'm not, I'm a nobody. God, I'm the least in my family. And then the Lord answered, oh, never mind, I must have the wrong house. That's not what he says. He didn't say that. This is what he says next. It's so important, listen. It's so important. What comes next is so powerful. And for me as a pastor, as your pastor, this is one of those things where I would say, oh God, if you could just through the power of your spirit get a hold of my heart and our hearts for just five moments here, for 30 seconds, if you could just open the eyes of our hearts to see this, to see us the way that you see us, how different our lives could possibly be, if we could just really see and understand what God says to him. Because God says this, I will be with you. Gideon, do you feel like a warrior? No, I don't. Well, you are a warrior. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Gideon, yes, you are. Gideon, what are you going to do? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your estimation of you? Are you going to believe God's estimation of you? So let me ask you, young people. Are you going to believe your estimation of you? And I'm, I'm not popular enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not skilled enough. Are you going to base your view on what everyone else around you tells you about you? See, because there's like this image of what the world says. This is what you need to look like. This is the number of followers you need to have. This is what you need to sound like. This is what you need to dress like. And if you want to be something significant, you're going to look like this. And the problem is we actually start to believe that. And there was a season in my life where I really had to struggle with this. See, there was a time when God says, I know, Scott, you've been playing your guitar and you're okay at that, but I want you to step out and I actually want you to start preaching my word and I actually want you to go and I want you to plant a church in this place called Brunswick. I said, whoa, God, that's, that's deep. All I ever do is play guitar. Why would you ever push me out of my wine press, God? I said, God, I've spent my whole life around preachers and here's what I see about preachers is these are charismatic 
people who could communicate to a room full of people and just, you know, like take this conversation through this place and just impact people or, or they were so shepherd-like and they could be so present with someone in their pain and, and they could just like ooze their heart all over the place and just kind of be like, you know, like hug people all the time like Chris Palmer, right? And I'm like, I'm not that person or, or they're so smart and they can just like understand deeply God's word all the time. And I, I struggle to understand that. God, that's not who I am. I'm not smart enough. I, I can't communicate like they do. I don't love as deeply or like the way that they do. God said, Scott, are you gonna stay in your wine press? Are you gonna hunker down? Or would you believe what I've said about you? Who are you gonna believe? And there's this image in the mirror about this is who you have to be. But what if that image is wrong? What if God sees you differently? And what if we've spent our whole lives going along with what everyone else has said? And living our lives like everyone else lives and dates like how everyone else dates and spends our money like everyone else spends our money. And we end up dreaming just as little as everyone else dreams. And what if God sees us differently and that's when I think, God, if just for 30 seconds, if the young people in our church could believe that, and then I think, why are we saying that that's true for the young people? Like, as adults, aren't we in the same place? Don't we often say, well, I'm too old, I'm, I'm, I'm not mobile enough, or I've got these problems, or look at my finances, or look at this, I've got this divorce in my past or in my future. God, you can't possibly use me. What if God would look at you and say, which estimation of you are you going to believe? Here's why I believe that that would change everything if we could just see ourselves the way that God sees ourselves. Because whenever I hear someone tell their story of life change, when they're sharing about how God got a hold of their heart and they're getting baptized and they say, you know, there was this moment when I realized that the God of the universe cares about me. And there's this moment where it's not just like the plan of God to save everyone, like Jesus died for the whole world, but Jesus actually died because he loves me. And he cares about me. And he cares about how I live my life and how I express my sexuality and how I interact with my, my, the people around me in community. You mean God actually cares about me and if God actually cares about me, it means that there's someone on my side and there's someone that's invested in my life in a way that I would have never understood. You mean that there's an opportunity for me to be more and to be extraordinary simply because of who is partnered with me. That's this powerful moment that they have, that many of you have had, this aha moment, and it's what Gideon was going through with the angel of the Lord. Gideon, you've got to see you the way that I see you. You know, there's, there's some commentators, commentators, whatever the word is, these people who write in theological and all this stuff, and they look at this and they say, you know, maybe God was being sarcastic with them. Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. <laughs> he's in the wine press. Or maybe Gideon's reaction is just that he's really humble when he's in the wine press. But I think we miss something really important and powerful in God's words because it's this, unbelievably powerful. If God says that Gideon is a mighty warrior, he is. 
sure, Gideon, you know, you need to use your own abilities, your own intuition, these skills, whatever God had naturally given him to be able to do, all of that had to be done. But Gideon is absolutely right in saying, I can't deliver Israel. That's not inside of me. But this is why God fills in the gap when he says, Gideon, I will be with you. And the question is, For Gideon, the question is for you, mom, single mom, the question is for you, college student or high school student or business owner or account executive or stay-at-home mom, will you be with me, God says, because I'm with you. And I've been with the nation for the the 310 years of this incredible saga where they've been ungrateful, where they've been blind, and I've not abandoned you, and I've been with you the whole time, Gideon, and I want to do something extraordinary with you. And that's what's so amazing about this whole book of Judges was how like, thick-skulled the Israelites were and yet God comes back to them over and over and over and over and over again. And we have the freedom to do what we want to do, when we want to do it. We can do what's right in our own eyes, but if we choose to go along with everyone else, we're going to miss the opportunity that God puts in front of us to be extraordinary. And so it's this defining moment in Gideon's life. Gideon, are you gonna step into being a man that's confident that the living God is with you? And that's what God is asking of us as well, that we would simply live our lives and make every single decision believing that the God of the Bible is here with us. And when we may not feel like a mighty warrior, God is with us. And some of us would say, well, that's great. But God didn't show up in me like an angel of the Lord didn't show up in my living room. I wasn't down in a wine press. That's why the words, listen, that's why the words of the Apostle Paul were so powerful. 1,300 years later, he writes to these Christians in Rome. Now, keep in mind, at this point in time, it's not a popular thing to be in Rome as a Christian. Nero was burning and torturing Christians all over the place. He was responsible for the death of the Apostle Paul and Peter. It was this horrible time. You did not want to be a Christian in that space and time. And if anyone who could have ran for the caves and for the wine presses, it was these Christians. And so Paul speaks to them and he speaks to us this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He speaks it to Gideon. Gideon, I I know you don't think you're a warrior, but I see you as something different. And I want you to step into this. And so 1,300 years later, Paul says, hey, the Spirit of God church is with you, God is with you, and God is for you, and it's at this point, I think, where even Paul would think, well, they're not going to believe that that's true. They have a lot going on around them, and they're living in Rome, and Nero's lighting us up all over the place and burning us and feeding us to animals. How are we going to know that God is actually for us? And so it's kind of like Gideon saying, God, how am I actually going to know that you're for us? I mean, we haven't seen a miracle since Egypt, and things are horrible. How are we going to know that you're here with us. So I think Paul knew that we were gonna ask that question, and he says this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He says, you know how you can live every day and wake up every day and know that God is for you, it's not gonna be from looking around at the Midianites, it's not gonna be from looking at the world around you, but you can wake up every single day knowing that God is for you, that he knows your name, that he cares about you. You can wake up every single day and know that he is with you because the tomb is empty. And it was witnessed by 500 people who saw it. 
and the fact that Jesus Christ died to pay the price for our sin so that we could be close to him, that's how we know how valuable we are. Now here's finance 101. The, the value of a thing is the price that it will bring. So you wanna know how valuable something is? Put it on eBay. That's the price it's gonna bring. That's how valuable it is. The value of a thing is the price it will bring. And this is what the Apostle Paul says to all of us. He says, you are so valuable to God that he equated you with the price of his son, the, the torturing, agonizing separation from painful death of his son. Now, listen, wake up and live as if that's true. See, but what Gideon had to do is he had to step out of his wine press. And it's just easier to stay in our wine presses, isn't it? It's just easier to stay in our caves. It's easier to say, you know what? I'm really good at guitar. I, I can keep writing this one out. I can keep doing this the rest of my life. It's pretty easy because coming out of the wine press is risky. What, what, if, what about the Midianites? What, what if they take away my wheat? What if I can't feed my family? What, what if this doesn't work? What if they attack again? That's why at every single step in the way, it took Gideon learning to trust the heart and the mind of God. Gideon, you've gotta come out of the wine press. And you gotta step into saying, step into what I'm saying is true about you. Now Gideon would go on and he would have some major doubts and God would show up in certain kinds of ways. It's an amazing story, you guys should read it. It really is profound. But God is calling him out and God is saying, listen, Gideon, your people have been crying out, and I'm telling you, you are the salvation I am sending. Just like Moses was the salvation for Israelites in Egypt, you're my salvation for the people around you now. We're so much like Gideon because we tend to see our troubles as evidence that God has left us. Instead of asking how God is gonna work in us and through us in order to do the good that he has promised to do. And we're often waiting for God to do something around us or to fix our situation or to fix our spouse because they just won't act the right way. And we're just waiting for God to bring help to us. And God is essentially saying, you know, you know we're saying, God, God, why won't you just remove this from us? And God is saying to us, how about instead I make you the kind of person, I change you from the inside out so that you can handle and bring life and truth and hope into the situation that you're in the middle of. I love what Stephen Furtick says. He says, it's dangerous to think more highly of yourself than you ought, but it's equally dangerous to think less of yourself than God does. He's right. It's dangerous to think more highly, but it's, it's probably even more dangerous to think more lowly of yourself than God does. Can I just tell you that in my ministry, I have seldom seen anyone that overestimates their own capabilities. I've seldom seen someone who just like, man, I'm, I'm just capable of so much but over and over and over and over again. I will come up against and have it in my own heart people who believe that they're off the hook because they're not powerful enough, they're not rich enough, they're not educated enough, they're not influential enough, they're not old enough, they're too old, they're not young enough, they don't have enough connections, just fill in the blank because we just wanna stay in our wine presses.
And the thing about the book of Judges, the thing about really all of Scripture, I mean, read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's awesome. Through page, from cover to cover, the whole thing is just full of people that were completely insignificant to do what God was asking them to do. But he partners with them, and it shows us that over and over and over again, God empowers and indwells and helps and stays with those people who are willing to be surrendered to him. He always responds to faith and surrender, not capability over and over again. So listen, don't you dare doubt what God can do in your life when you surrender him to him and submit to him. Don't you dare settle for a seven-string guitar when God wants something so much more than that. What excuse do you give God? Because you have no idea what God would do in you if we would just yield our heart, being fully committed to how he defines us and not how the world defines us, but we just have to step out of the wine press we keep waiting for the circumstances of, oh God, when I just have enough, when I've just finished this degree, when I've just, you know, when the kids are out of the house, you know, when we finally have kids, you know, when I get that car, you know, when, when I get enough education, you know, when all of this stuff happens. And God looks at us and says, listen, go in the strength that you have. My mercies are new every morning. And you wake up this morning and you say, God, I'm gonna follow after you and I'm gonna tap into those mercies and that strength. And listen, when your faith and God's faithfulness collides, watch out. But go in the strength that you have because when God is for you, who can be against you? And the prayer is, oh God, if we could just see ourselves for 30 seconds the way that you see us, what a difference that would make. Let me pray for you and then we're gonna respond in a worship song together. Heavenly Father, would you please in this moment, maybe for a handful of us, would you lift our eyes would you, our, would you lift our vision of kind of what our ordinary lives look like? In some cases, you know, like they feel like boring lives. Would you lift our eyes up and away from what everyone else is doing? And would you please, would you please, as the psalmist says, open the eyes of our hearts, as Paul would write that as well, to catch a glimpse of how you see us and to give us the courage to step into and to what you see and to live that way. God, we pray all of this in the incredible matchless name of Jesus Christ who died that our sins could be taken away so that we could be whole with you.